Okay, so thank you to Natalie Bennett, the former Green Party leader and now in the House of Lords for joining me today. Um, so you grew up in Australia and then moved to the UK. How different was it moving, having the transition from journalism in Australia to working in politics here? Okay, brilliant. Um, so I want to move on to some of my main questions now. So I'm going to start with Brexit because obviously it was such a massive issue from the referendum up to like only a couple of weeks ago. Um, so the Green Party's message was during the referendum, uh, sorry, after the referendum was that you wanted a people's vote. Um, and, you know, a lot of people have said that there were, there were deals that were presented to Parliament that the Green Party could have voted on. Would you have voted on any deal or what sort of deal would you have looked for from the government? people will of course 
Okay. Um, can you just explain to um, the listeners of my podcast how the how the bills and the voting works in the House of Lords? Because obviously it's different to how it is in the Commons. Can you just explain that? Uh, yeah, and, and what I'll try and do actually, I'll send you a link later. In fact, you can put it in the in the post or something. So it's mm. actually write a piece for um, Green World um, about how that works. Um, and Okay, great, thank you. Um, so I just want to move back onto Brexit just for one question, um, because the Brexit deal um, went through the House of Commons. It obviously became law on the first of January. Um, do you think that is still as harmful as previous deals and leaving at all? Well, um, what we have is that the House of Lords is now 
been settled, nothing's been decided in finance. Um, there's huge areas where, where, where the talks are ongoing, lots of things are being kicked down the road. I mean, for example, you know, if you look at um, the UK is not currently enforcing lots of regulations about imports, which it will have to enforce under WTO World Trade Organization rules on goods coming in from the from the EU. Um, so at the moment, most of the problems that are happening with the freight are, are, are with things going out of the UK, um, where the UK the EU rules are imposed. But it's actually going to be a two-way problem very soon, you know, from April. And you know those um, you know, slightly silly, but I think still quite evocative stories of you know uh, lorry drivers having their um, their cheese and ham sandwiches. Uh, confiscated at the border, yeah. you know, we're going to see a huge amount more of that as you know, much more serious things are going to be going on. And there's, there's just basically, we have you know, a tiny fraction of the issues of our relationship between the EU and the UK in the future, have a, only a tiny fraction of them have been settled. And you know, if you take another area, for example, you know, will we have an agreement with equivalents um, on data adequacy, which you know, is, a, is a technical area about how um, internet data, you know, all, uh, uh, digital data, huge issue now in so many different areas, um, is shared. But one of the things is this is not a problem that's going to go away because an adequacy ruling from the EU um, can be withdrawn at any time. Hmm. So if you are a company making a plan to want to work, say, across both in the UK and the EU, um, you will have no ongoing certainty about what the rules are going to be because they could change at any time. And of course, you know, the nature of the deal is such that it, it could be just chucked out in a year or two or three or four's time, um, and we'd be back to essentially a no-deal scenario. So there really is no certainty um, about the relationship, and all of that's still really going to be negotiated and talked about. Okay, all right, thank you. Um, I just want to move on to COVID now, because it's such a massive story at the moment, obviously. Um do you think that the government were too slow in responding to the pandemic in early last year? Yes. I mean, I think we've got to be really careful in sort of maximum honesty and transparency. I mean, I remember being in the first week of lockdown when the House was still sitting and we were passing the emergency legislation. You know, there were a lot of things that we didn't know or things we thought we knew, we knew that we now know to be wrong. For example, you know, what is the awareness of aerosol transmission, the importance of masks? And it's important that we don't beat up the government for making wrong decisions about things that someone has to make a call on with inadequate information in the form. But nonetheless, if you go back and look at the information at the time and look at, you know, the government talks about following the science, the, and the scientists, the scientists were all saying lockdown at least a week earlier than we did. And if you look at other, you know, roughly comparable countries who were on a roughly comparable curve to us, they did lockdown earlier. And that's you know, been, and they got much better results. And, you know, okay, we made that mistake once first in March and mistakes get made to be under pressure, but we kept making the same mistake again and mm. again and again. And that's inexcusable and it can't be blamed on inadequate data or inadequate knowledge because you know, we are now a year into the um, pandemic. And, you know, as I asked um, uh, Lord Bethel in the House this week, you know, where is the government's long-term plan you know, setting out vaccination plans, plans for how we might start to loosen things off, how we're going to manage the continuing risk of infection. What should be there? You know, with an understanding that, of course, events will happen, new variants will arise, etc. But there should be a complete plan laid out to people, a small business person, someone who's you know, got their own, their own small freelance business that's really struggling or not getting any money at the moment, so they can see the picture of what the government's aiming to achieve, what 
is spelled out. And we just don't have any of that planning and organisation set up. Okay. Um, do you support the current vaccination programme with, along with mass testing? Obviously, we saw mass testing in Liverpool. Um, it helped brought cases, bring cases down, but now, of course, across the country, they've gone back up. Um, or do you believe that other preventative measures could have been brought in to help stop the spread of COVID? I mean, absolutely support the vaccination programme's principle and broadly in the approach of obviously vaccinating those medically vulnerable first. Um, what we're not seeing is a real focus on, well, there's many things to say about the vaccination programme, but a couple of things to keep out. Um, one is you know, we really need to, during the first lockdown particularly, there was a great focus on our essential workers and understanding of the importance of you know, people in supermarkets doing deliveries, um, people who are putting, you know, putting themselves at risk every day to keep our society running, to keep the essentials running, as well as, of course, the social care workers and the, and the nursing staff, etc. And we should be seeing, you know, a real focus on getting the vaccine to them as absolutely soon as possible. And, you know, the government has really just not shown the kind of urgency it should have done. I mean, you know, this idea that, oh, you know, people won't want to go get a vaccine late at night. Now, I think 24 hours might be a bit, bit, bit of a, a mistake. You know, I don't think we should be asking you know, the heavily stretched medical staff to vaccinate people necessarily at 2 in the morning. But that doesn't mean you couldn't run clinics from 6am to 11pm or something, so, you know, if that's mm. what seems to be in that mm. kind of range. And that the government has kind of suggested that all consumers, consumers wouldn't want that was just a nonsense. Um, in terms of testing, I think there's a huge problem with the government messaging. And indeed, I was commenting on this in the House um, today is, you know, the quality of government messaging has been, been terrible. Um, these rapid flow tests, which in real life have, you know, up to a 50% false negative rate. Um, and it's not to say that they're useless. If you look at, the, say, the Liverpool situation where you try and test almost an entire population and therefore you find quite a lot of infections where people with asymptomatic infections and therefore you can close down the transmission and therefore use that on a population level to slash the transmission of virus. That makes perfect sense. But what hasn't been explained to people, and the government has far too often given the wrong messages, if you get a negative rapid flow test, that does not mean you can now go and hug your granny. You know, you're medically vulnerable mm. in, in, the, in, in the words, you know, over 80 granny. Um, because there's a really you know, significant chance, particularly in areas of high transmission, that that result is wrong. And you know, the government has really failed to trust the people quality of their messaging, their sophistication of their messaging, realising that people can understand, you know, quite complicated things. You look at the messages in New Zealand, in Germany, the quality of what Angela Merkel or Jacinta Ahern says to their public has a level of detail, a level of knowledge that assumes that people will be able to follow complicated data and, you know, you get a good graph to explain it to people and make it really clear. Other countries have just done so much better in the comms and you know, have been using their tests much better. So mm. those are the things. And, you know, we also, there's a single term which I think there's a big mistake on is using the term COVID secure. What we now know about aerosol transmission is you can walk, walk into a room with someone perhaps who had a high COVID virus load three hours before and the virus can still be circulating in the air. So there is no such thing as a COVID secure workplace. You can take measures to reduce risk and that means, you know, and these are all terribly important of work doing it means masks, it means social distancing, it means perspex screens. All of those things will reduce the risk, but they don't eliminate the risk. And the government has really done a terrible job of communicating that. Um, and also, you know, 
we've done a terrible job of being honest with people. Do we really need these people to still be at work? You know, talk, you talk about homes who are um, building sites, but you know, um, my father was a builder, um, and I know that you know, if two people have to carry a, a short but very heavy beam um, that's you know 1.5 meters long, they're not going to be two meters apart. That's yeah. just the practical reality, mm. and, and just honesty and, re- and realism has been lacking. Okay, and what what would you say about the um, the American response? Because obviously there's been a lot of criticism for against Donald Trump and his sort of perceived herd immunity where there's no lockdown measures at all. People are told to social distance, but people rarely do. What, how do you respond to that? Well, I think it's obvious that you, the American response has been a tragedy and a disaster and a reflection of the extreme weakness of um, the American political system, the American healthcare system. You know, it's a sign that um, uh, you know, this is not a model to follow, and I spend quite a lot of my time thinking about how you know, the NHS has been heavily privatised on American models, and that's a disaster, and we have to stop it and reverse it. Um, but it, the level of political decision-making, you know, it is really very telling that um, two of the countries that have done worse are the US and the UK, which have majoritarian, undemocratic political systems, where their parliaments don't, and, and governments don't reflect the will of the people, um, aren't trusted by the people, have huge issues, whereas, you know, countries, the, the country that's often seen to have been done the best, New Zealand, is a proportional representation, you know, democratic model in which you've got a real quality of governance um, that's just far higher than the quality of governance we have in the UK or the US. And one of the things we need to take from this is that we have to, you know, we need to be more democratic for moral reasons, for practical reasons, the claims of right-wing populism. Um, you know, I understand why people said they wanted to take back control in 2016, and I entirely sympathise with them because people haven't been in control of their own lives uh, because of our political structures. Um, but you know, what we also have to express is this simply doesn't work. Our political system is profoundly dysfunctional, and it's not managing to even in a technocratic way deliver the policies of the government um, because our system is broken. We haven't seen significant political reform in Westminster for 100 years since women got the vote. It's about time we got into the 21st century. Mm. So when you say about the majoritarian systems, do you think that, because currently the House of Lords is appointed, not elected, do you think the House of Lords should be elected, be more proportional? Um, Because obviously you've been advocating before for proportional representation. Do you, do you see that as a way forward in the House of Lords and, you know, both chambers being elected under PR? Very much so. And, you know, I don't just see it that way. Um, pretty well the first thing I did after I made the speech was to walk upstairs to the bill office holding in my hand uh, my uh, elections and other reforms House of Lords bill. Um, and I actually inherited this from Jenny Jones, my fellow Green here. I can't really claim any credit for the actual contents, but pushing the idea of an elected House of Lords is something that I do at every opportunity. But one of the interesting things is, you know, I talk to great organisations like Make Votes Matter, and they're a bit concerned that, you know, we might people we might see a fob off job where people say, oh, look, it's the Lords, but, you know, we'll leave the Commons as it is. But actually, you would immediately, if you, if you created a PR elected House of Lords, you would be creating immediately a huge constitutional crisis because the House of Lords, supposed to be the House of the Review, the secondary house, would have far greater democratic legitimacy than the Commons because it was still elected by first past the post. And so you would have to fix the Commons. Um, but the other thing which 
also have the most centralised political system um, in Europe in terms of the focus of power on Westminster, focus of resources on Westminster. Local government has been entirely hollowed out, lost power, uh, lost the resources. And so when we think about that take-back control agenda, what we have to do is genuine devolution of power and resources right down to the smallest possible local level, and I'm talking parish at, at base level. Um, you know, so people have control in their own communities to make decisions for those communities, and power only gets transferred upwards when absolutely necessary. Um, and putting those two things together, those I think are the two key things um, to get Britain heading towards a functional democratic political system. And the way I'd achieve that is through the People's Constitutional Convention, um, get together a representative group of people from around the country time and the resources, have a huge national debate on social media about what our politics should look like, but get that People's Constitutional Convention to set out the principles um, and start from there. Okay, thank you. Um, so obviously the Green Party is advocating for a greener society, um, and I haven't actually touched upon this yet, but I'm just going to ask you, do you believe that the government should take more action on climate change, and what could that action look like? Well, I think, I mean, you know, uh, the, we have a government that's still planning on airport expansion, still planning on building new roads, um, that um, pays a lot of lip service. You know, I, I was talking to uh, Julia Hartley Brewer from Talk Radio, and she sort of rather grumpily complained to me that everyone talks green now. And I said, yes, it's true that everyone talks green, uh, but acting green is, is, you know, a very different kettle of fish. Um, there's lots of those kind of big policy things, but we also have to look at what is a green society. Green society is one in which everyone meets, that there has their basic needs met, where everyone has a decent quality of life, where everyone's treated with respect. So a green society also means things like something that's come up very much in the um, uh, during COVID-19, a universal basic income, so everyone has their basic needs met. You know, four-day working week is standard with no loss of pay to start off with, I think eventually heading down to a three-day week. We're talking in terms of environmental issues, it's not just the hard physical infrastructure. That's part of the story, but much bigger part of the story is reshaping our society so that we focus on resilience. You know, COVID-19 is just one of the shocks we're likely to face. We are in a, in a very, very unstable society, climate shocks, um, you know, health shocks. And so we need to focus on resilience. We need to focus on you know, a caring society, a healthy society. We've got a huge ep epidemic of mental ill health. And all of these things are interrelated. A, you know, essentially utterly broken economic model that's trashing the planet and creating a miserable society for people. You know, Green New Deal is often seen as kind of um, hard hats and solar panels and wind turbines. The Green New Deal means huge numbers more jobs in social care, you know, more jobs in education, smaller class sizes, really restructuring society so it works for people and planet. And that's what a green society means. Okay, great. Um... And more generally, um, would you would you attempt to run to be an MP again? Uh, well, I can't do that while as a member of the House of Lords. Um, you, know, I am confident that the future of politics doesn't look like the past. That's something I've been saying for well, probably I'd have to go back and check, but at least six or seven years. And you know, I think I've kind of been proved. Right, you know, you're not supposed to say I told you so in politics, but I think I've kind of been proved in that one. In that, uh, not too many people in 2010 would have predicted where we are in 20. Um, uh, but so, you know, um, what will happen when we create a modern democratic constitution, um, elect 
the Lord, the comments of the Lord's, um, you know, what I might do under that situation, I don't know. I sometimes say, you know, when we're about to form our first green government, that's when I'll decide to retire and go off and, and write my history of the Women of London book that I, I tried to start about 15 years ago and got, got overtaken by the Green Party. Um, but, you know, I wouldn't rule it out. But, you know, mm. my main aim really is, you know, I want to see many more young people, particularly in politics. One of the things I try and do is, is, is promote, encourage, support, um, lots of young people, you know, our politics is way, way too old. And if you look at us in comparison with most continental European countries, the average age of our politicians is you know, very high. And you know, we just don't see the sort of diverse young, you know, I think I was at the, um, in Berlin at the Green European meeting probably 18 months ago now. And you're watching an absolutely wonderful 26 year old uh, German Green MP from a refugee background, you know, just nailing it in English, so, you know, it's probably her third or fourth language, just utterly nailing the room and being so exciting and so inspiring. And, you know, we, we've seen so few opportunities. We don't have a political structure. You know, I want to see votes at 16. Um, I want to see people elected at, you know, 16, 17, 18. I want to see a lot more people of those kind of age groups in our politics, people from more, far more diverse backgrounds, you know, an entirely different kind of politics. So, you know, my hope is that, you know, when we get to that point, well, you know, I can step back and go off and do some fun things instead. Okay, brilliant. Um, what, what, what were you most proud of achieving as leader of the Green Party? And what did you enjoy most about being leader? Um, in terms of what was achieved, I think there's two things. Um, one was, you know, just concrete, measurable. We got 1.1 million votes in the general election in 2015, which was more votes than we had in every previous general election added together. And that's a very large leap for a political party in the British political system. Um, and the second thing was that I think in conjunction with Rianne Wood and Nicola Sturgeon, um, we managed to start to change the debate about austerity, the ridiculous debate about the government budget being treated as though it were a, um, as though it were a household budget. You, I, I often think back to those leader debates in 2015, and you know, I was so glad that Leanne and Nicola were there, because otherwise I would have been the only anti-austerity voice, and that would have been really tough. It was still pretty tough because we had you know, a mainstream political um, class, a mainstream media group, who regarded an anti-austerity message as a radical thing instead of just a statement of obvious fact and reality. Um, uh, and so the fact that we were able to um, to do that. And in terms of the most fun, well, I, you know, one can't really do it in quite the same way now, although we try, is I love public meetings. I love meetings mm. where, you know, you've, you've gone into a town or city, um, you've advertised that, you know, anywhere from 50 to 250 people turn up and you don't know what's coming, you don't know what people will be interested in, you have a debate, you set out some ideas and you answer questions. And I love that that question answering point because, um, uh, you know, it's a really, I, I just love that interacting with audiences, exchanging ideas. And I also love doing that when I go into schools, colleges and universities in pre-COVID days. And yeah. you know, one of the best ones I ever did was a, a class of 10 and 11 year olds in North Yorkshire. Um, and they asked some absolutely brilliant questions and were amazingly politically switched on and was as smart a group of questions as I've ever encountered. Um, and so, you know, I, I really enjoy that, that interaction, the political debate, the political discussion. And, you know, you can just about do it on Zoom. It's not quite the same, but um, you know, I'm continuing to do that. I'll, I'll be with um, 
tomorrow morning with a group of teachers talking about uh, teaching climate uh, change, for example. Um, yeah. So, you know, that, that, that's where I love that, that to and fro, the interaction with, you know, not necessarily other politicians, but just with general public people from all different walks of life, all different backgrounds, all different, you know, knowledge about things that I know nothing about and I can learn something from them as well. Okay, thank you. Let's save that.